Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Heritage Foundation's Executive Vice President, Kim Holmes. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and to all you brave souls who are willing to come to a public event like this. We greatly appreciate all of you coming out today. Uh, it's really uh, an honor to have all of you here. Uh, my name is Kim Holmes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Heritage Foundation. It's my privilege to introduce our program and our special guests this morning. Uh, as a courtesy to the speakers, I'd like to remind everyone to do a final check uh, to make sure that your mobile device is either silenced or turned off. So I'd like to welcome all of you officially on behalf of Mrs. James, uh, the president of the Heritage Foundation, and my colleagues at the Heritage Foundation to our annual James D. McGinley Lecture, featuring our special guest, Robert O'Brien, Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs. I'd like to thank all of you for joining us today. And once again, on behalf of my colleagues at Heritage, I'd like to extend a warm welcome and a warm greeting to our distinguished guests in the media, uh, the policy community, and a diplomatic corps. Ambassador O'Brien has been National Security Advisor for just under six months. In that short time, Britain left the European Union. Iranian terrorist Qasem Soleimani was killed in a targeted U.S. drone strike. And the White House submitted the President's budget request for fiscal year 2021 to Congress. The world never stands still, and we at Heritage know that in order to defend the United States and its interests, the country must have a sound foreign policy executed by responsible leaders. We consider Ambassador O'Brien to be one of those responsible leaders, and we are grateful for his leadership. We would also like to thank the sponsor for this lecture, James Beginley, who you will hear from shortly, and also welcome uh, his wife, Mary Beth, to the Heritage Foundation, whose support makes this series possible. Thank you for joining us. The annual Colonel James D. McGinley Lecture always features a distinguished speaker from the National Security Affairs Arena. In the past, we have welcomed General David Berger, Senator John Kyle, and General James Mattis. And now let me introduce the man for whom this lecture series is named, Colonel James McGinley. Colonel McGinley has lived a life of service to his country. He's a veteran of three combat tours. He served for 30 years as a naval aviator in the United States Marine Corps. In his military career, Colonel McGinley held many roles of critical responsibility, including the deputy commander of the Iraq Assistance Group and De deputy commander of the Expeditionary Strike Group 5. His combat decorations include the Legion of Merit, and the Bronze Star. Beyond his military achievements, he has accomplished much in a, as a successful uh, lawyer in a legal career as a civil litigator. He has published legal uh, author, and he was a peer reviewer of the Journal of National Security Law and Policy. So please join me in welcoming Colonel James McGinley. Tell we're a little light on the handshakes today. Dr. Holmes, thank you so much. And uh, before I forget, I do want to say thank you to the entire Heritage team uh, with Dr. Jay Carafano's, uh, James Carafano's uh, leadership and uh, General Tom Spore. Really a great group, and they put together an amazing event for us here today. Uh, 
I, I uh, don't know that I've seen everybody coming in, but I do have uh, both uh, Admiral Sinclair Harris and Lieutenant General Keith Walker uh, on deck, and I appreciate both of them being here, as well as I saw the, the former chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, uh, Buck McKeon, uh, I think he's here, and uh, General Mike Meese, and of course, uh, Major General uh, Andrew Davis here, native of the Washington, D.C. area. Thank you to each of you for making time in your day today to join us. Uh, each of those people with extraordinary service to the country. Well, uh, transitioning, it is my uh, distinct honor and privilege today to introduce uh, Robert O'Brien. Ambassador O'Brien is an attorney, he's an author, and he is a statesman. Uh, a native of Southern California, uh, a graduate of Bolt Hall out there at Berkeley, and an attorney uh, who has been uh, had a very distinguished career, uh, also a major in the United States Army JAG, but uh, importantly, the alternate representative to the United Nations uh, during, I think, the Bush timeframe, uh, back and forth, uh, blending his uh, federal service uh, to his civilian career. Also, he's also been a special master in the U.S. courts, handling a lot of complicated issues in federal litigation, including uh, things like discovery masters. So uh, with that, the current administration reached out and tapped him to be our special envoy for hostage affairs. Uh, and most notably, I think uh, some of our countrymen have come home from places like Turkey and Yemen. It means the world to those families to have that kind of effort and emphasis put on reuniting Americans who have been held in foreign countries. Uh, and uh, I think it was the president who scored him out at uh, 38 to zero. So I, uh, you can tell he's been an extraordinary success and then this past September, uh, Ambassador uh, O'Brien was uh, elevated to handling our national security as the, our next national security advisor. I think he's been aptly described as a man with a razor sharp mind and a diplomatic demeanor. Please join me in welcoming Ambassador O'Brien. Thank you. Uh, after hearing uh, Cam introduce the colonel, I think we'd rather hear from him than me uh, with his uh, distinguished background. So thank you for that kind introduction. Uh, it's, uh, it's always great to be introduced by a Marine. Uh, I grew up in a, a household. My dad had been a Marine Corps officer. He was extraordinarily disappointed when I uh, commissioned into the Army. Uh, thought it was some sort of failure <laughs> on his, his part. But uh, Beth and, and, and Colonel McGinley, thank you for uh, sponsoring this lecture. Uh, we, we have a few things in common. Uh, he's a graduate of Pepperdine Law School, which uh, which does not have a very nice campus out in Malibu. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it's, 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 uh, it's an inexpensive school to uh, attend. Uh, I say that having my daughter having graduated from Pepperdine Law School last year, uh, that was a nice day to uh, <laughs> sign the last check. As uh, She said, Dad, it's really nice out here. I said, no, it's Malibu is great. It's uh, I'm glad you've enjoyed it. So, uh, so thank you, uh, Colonel. Thank you, Kim. Kim and I worked together. Uh, uh, worked together in the past, as I as I like to tell the president, uh, we worked together for the 2012 Republican nominee, who the president endorsed, and uh, and so it's uh, it's great to be back. I, I grew up in in the Reagan years, and uh, the, the Heritage Foundation just just wasn't a think tank. It was the think tank, and I, I think it still remains the think tank. And so for me, it's a, a huge honor to, uh, to be here. Uh, I've got friends here and uh, a lot of great scholars, and to talk to you briefly about the president's uh, national security uh, agenda. Uh, as I always do in these uh, settings, I'm, I'm pleased to bring you the greetings of the 45th president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. Uh, he's a, a friend of the Heritage Foundation, and I know the Heritage Foundation has huge influence. Uh, and not just in the city, but it's uh, it's the, the, the thoughts and ideas that uh, and, and policy options that come from the Heritage Foundation are, are uh, make a big impact on Capitol Hill, and they do in the White House as well. So President Trump has done more for the security of our nation in the last three years than any president in my lifetime in a three-year period. Uh, prior to uh, serving in this job, I was the president's special envoy for hostage affairs, as the Colonel pointed out. And in March of last year, I was privileged to be in the Oval Office when uh, we brought back a, an American hostage who'd been held in, by uh, a terrorist group in Yemen, Danny Birch. 
And the, uh, the president welcomed Danny back and he said, we have a very big moment because we have Danny Birch back home where he should be, Danny, welcome home. And Danny responded, he's kind of a laconic uh, Texan uh, uh, oil guy, and he said, gosh, it's great to be an American. And, and when he said that, even the jaded White House press corps all applauded him. And, uh, and it was wonderful, it was, a, it was a great day, and I was privileged to be there on, on several other days like that when we welcomed home Americans who'd either been held by rogue regimes unjustly or had been held by uh, hostage takers. And I think the president's commitment to our fellow Americans who are held wrongly held overseas is emblematic of his determination to put America first when it comes to our foreign policy and our national security. I've had the solemn duty of uh, joining the president uh, when he visits Dover Air Force Base for the dignified transfer uh, of our fallen heroes. Uh, I'm gonna be uh, uh, likely heading up to, uh, to Dover, uh, sadly, this afternoon for uh, one of those events. And there's nothing more difficult for any president, especially this president, to do than to make the, the trip to Dover and spend time with the family of, of the fallen. So when President Trump talks about America first, he does so with the understanding uh, that it's our warriors who may be called upon to make the ultimate sacrifices necessary to secure our national interest. Whether unveiling a, a bold Middle East peace plan, pulling us out of the disastrous JCPOA, rallying a regional coalition to deter, to deter Iran's nuclear ambitions and support for terrorism, taking decisive action against the Iranian Quds Force and its leader, Qasem Soleimani, destroying the ISIS territorial caliphate, ordering a bold joint force special operations mission to bring justice to ISIS founder and leader, Bakir al-Baghdadi, or getting our NATO allies to finally increase their defense spending, President, Trump clear, President Trump's clear-eyed focus on advancing our national interest and is delivering big wins for the United States. A defining aspect of the President's tenure in office and a core principle behind America First is the need to maintain overwhelming American military power. It's what President Reagan referred to as peace or strength, and it animates the rebuilding of the U.S. military that's occurred under President Trump. And to that end, the president has secured over the last three and a half years $2.2 trillion in defense funding to include one of the largest defense budgets increases in decades. Uh, we currently have a budget for fiscal year 20 of $738 billion for the men and women of our armed forces. We're guided on the national security front by two transformative documents, President Trump's national security strategy and the Pentagon's national defense strategy. Both postulate a future defined by long-term peacetime competition with great powers China and Russia. The challenge requires different ways of thinking about our national defense, different force structures, and a return to a conception of national defense that is a, cha that is a change from the past two decades of, of focus on ground-intensive uh, counterinsurgencies in the Middle East and South Central Asia. The administration's priorities going forward focus on accelerating the development and rapid deployment of hypersonic technologies, modernizing our nuclear deterrent, achieving real gains in the space domain, utilizing cut cutting-edge missile defense capabilities, and delivering on the president's commitment of a 355-ship Navy. These are not short. These are short-term goals. These are not out-year goals. Uh, I, I mentioned sometimes to my staff, I would love nothing more than to live in the out-years. Uh, the out years are amazing. Everything's fantastic in the out years. Uh, unfortunately, we never get there uh, with some of these projects and, and some of our, our priorities. So these are short-term goals. In space, America is leading the world, and President Trump is taking bold steps to ensure it stays that way. In the last six months, he's reestablished a combatant command for space, and most importantly, he stood up the U.S. Space Command, the U.S. Space Force, the sixth branch of the armed services. Uh, this is the first new branch of our armed services since... Uh, uh, the Air Force was established uh, at the close of World War II. These are serious history-making efforts that will result in a safer, more secure space domain for the long term. We're focusing uh, on space as a critical warfare domain and aligning our space organization's role with our national defense and America's economic prosperity. The world has changed, and what happens in space will affect the outcome of future crises and conflicts that could impact our critical infrastructure at home. We're focused on deterring aggression in space against the U.S., U.S. interests, and our allies. In the modern world, space is intrinsically linked to all other warfare domains. What happens in space does not stay there. Uh, we must act now to ensure that space is never a denied environment for the United States. With the U.S. Space Force, we now have an institution focused on building doctrine and capabilities 
for a unique and critical domain. And I want to tell you the number of talented Americans, both within the armed services and outside the armed services, that want to be part of the Space Force is truly incredible. I think the President, with, the, with standing up the Space Force in Congress, has captured the imagination of the American people. When it comes to sea power, President Trump recognizes that the dominant, na dominant naval forces and a coherent maritime strategy are the engines of our national defense strategy. We are a maritime nation, and our security and our prosperity are irreversibly linked to the world's great oceans. To maintain overmatch against our peer competitors, our Navy must maintain warfighting readiness to enable the best naval forces in the world to operate forward where and when we choose. And while readiness is critical, the size and composition of the fleet is vital to our continued maritime dominance. To that end, President Trump has re reiterated his commitment to building a Navy of at least 355 capital warships in the near future. I know Secretary Esper, Chairman Milley, and Acting Secretary of the Navy, Modley, who is a great advocate of American sea power, share this commitment and this vision. To maintain our maritime dominance and freedom of maneuver, we're exploring a range of alternative future fleet designs that are capable of meeting the demands of the national security strategy and the national defense strategy. The composition of a future force will continue to emphasize large surface combatants. We also require more and smaller surface combatants such as the future frigate. Lightly or optionally manned ships may also play a role. And continued dominance in the undersea domain is truly our trump card. The US Air Force will continue to rule the skies as it has for over two generations. Despite the cancellation of the F-22 program, which was perhaps the worst procurement mistake in, in the history of U.S. military procurement, uh, the Air Force is taking delivery of the F-35 and the F-15X. While the Air Force awaits the fielding of the B-21, it's critical that we maintain our existing long-range bomber capability and not retire legacy platforms and legacy bombers prematurely before the B-21 is delivered in substantial numbers. Under Commandant Berger, the Marine Corps is, is innovatively executing the national defense strategy by leveraging its traditional strengths in amphibious and expeditionary warfare to prepare for great power competition. One example is how the Corps will deploy intermediate range fires from ships and small islands uh, in the first and second island chain. I commend the Commandant's planning and, and guidance to use a superlative example of the service taking strategic, uh, strategic concepts like the NSS and the NDS and the Indo-Pacific strategy and incorporating them into their operating concepts. As we transition from the previous generation of counterinsurgencies into a new era of competition, the Army under Secretary McCarthy and his leadership is working on advanced missiles and hypersonic platforms to project American power wherever it is needed. This is particularly pronounced in the Indo-Pacific, where the Army is returning and where it will remain a critical player in the years ahead. The administration is making needed investments in modernizing our nuclear capabilities across domains. We're ensuring not just the readiness of our current deterrent, but making the investments re required for the future, including the Columbia-class submarine, the B-21 Raider, and a new class of land-based IBMs that will serve us for decades to come. Since becoming President Trump's National Security Advisor in September, we've undertaken historic reforms at the National Security Council to effectively support the President's national security agenda. Under President Obama, the NSC staff had ballooned to almost 250 policy professionals. When I assumed office, the, that number was still over 175 policy professional, professionals. Six months into my tenure at the NSC, we've streamlined the staff to uh, between 110 and 115 professionals in line with where the NSC was when Condoleezza Rice held this post uh, in the, the first term of the Bush administration. At the same time, we're running more principal and deputy committee meetings than have, than have happened in any time in recent memory. I think we have had over 80 principal and deputies committee meetings over the, the last six months, and that's the lifeblood of the interagency and the policy process. And those, <clears throat> by running that process, <clears throat> excuse me, we ensure that the president receives the best advice and the best options and the best policy counsel as he makes critical decisions that affect America's national security. Like Ronald Reagan, President Trump's belief in peace through strength and putting America first is, has successfully guided us through difficult years in a dangerous and complicated world. Thank you once again for the opportunity to share the President's vision for his national security priorities and policies with you here today. I look forward to taking your questions 
uh, God bless you all and uh, stay safe and, and use lots of, uh, of hand sanitizer and wash your hands as we, as we confront uh, uh, Corona. But thank you again very much for, uh, for coming out and spending the morning with me. Take care. Well, welcome again to Heritage. It's great, it's great seeing you again. Uh, we only have 15 minutes, and I want to get to some of the questions from the audience. Uh, but I wanted to get started off by asking you about uh, the, the topic that's on everyone's mind, which is the coronavirus. And uh, people are, are very much interested in how it's uh, developing around the world. But what I want to ask you about specifically is how do you think China has handled uh, this issue? They they seem to have started out early on with uh, some rather confusing statements about where it was starting, and now in recent weeks they've even denied that it started in China. Uh, how, what's your thinking and the president's thinking about how China has handled this issue? Well, the, the first thing I'd want to point out is that uh, th this virus did not originate in the United States. It originated in Wuhan and Hubei province in China. Uh, it originated some time ago. Uh, unfortunately, rather than using best practices, uh, this uh, outbreak in, in Wuhan was covered up. Uh, there's, there's lots of open source reporting from China, from Chinese nationals, uh, that the doctors involved were either uh, silenced or, uh, <coughs> or, or put in uh, uh, isolation or that sort of thing so that the word of this virus could not get out. It probably cost the world community two months uh, to respond, and those two months, uh, if we'd had those and been able to sequence uh, the virus and had the cooperation necessary from the Chinese. Uh, had a, a WHO team uh, been on the ground, had a CDC team, which we'd offered, been on the ground. Uh, I think we could have uh, uh, dramatically curtailed what happened both in China and what's now happening across the world. So, uh, you know, that, that, that's how it started. Uh, the president took very bold action uh, when, when we realized the extent of what was happening and we stopped uh, air travel coming in from China. There were 20,000 people a day coming from China. Uh, into the U.S., uh, uh, the president made a very courageous decision and was one of the first uh, leaders of a, of a major country to make that decision. I think he was the first leader of a, of a, of a major economic power to make the decision to stop the uh, uh, incoming travel of, of folks uh, who'd been in China or who were originating in China. That bought the United States uh, you know, six to eight weeks to prepare uh, for the virus. He's done a number of other things we brought in to the White House uh, Debbie Burks, a uh, fantastic physician and ambassador from the State Department. And we appreciate Secretary Pompeo uh, uh, immediately moving her over to, to the White House at, at our request, the President's request. Uh, he put Vice President uh, Pence in charge of the task force, which has been meeting uh, sometimes twice a day uh, over the last uh, almost two months uh, to get our arms around uh, uh, Corona. So, uh, look, this is a, this is a, a, a complicated issue. Uh, pandemics and, uh, and epidemics are... Uh, are some of the greatest challenges we face uh, as a country. I think we've done a good job responding to it, but it is, you know, look, it's it, the, the way that it, this uh, started out in China, the way it was handled from the outset uh, was not right. It should have been handled differently, uh, but we are where we are right now. Uh, we're doing our best to work with the Chinese. Uh, one thing I'll point out is when we evacuated our citizens from Wuhan, uh, that the, the, the 747s that, uh, that flew into that city were loaded with medical supplies, masks, personal protective equipment, uh, uh, medical supplies. And those were furnished not by the government. They were, they were furnished by Americans. They were furnished by Samaritan's Purse and by the, the LDS Church out in Salt Lake and other uh, Americans that wanted to, to help the people of China. And so I think we've, been, uh, we've done what we can. We've sent our condolences to China, but now we're in a stage where we're having to deal with the crisis here. And uh, uh, what I would urge everyone to do is to, uh, to take heed of the uh, CDC warnings. Uh, uh, if you're feeling sick, don't come to work. If you're if you've got a coworker who sneezes, send them home. Uh, do some do some uh, uh, you know allow for some social distancing. Uh, use uh, hand sanitizer and, and wash your hands obsessively, uh, and, and and just be smart about things. Uh, stay in good health, exercise, and uh, and we'll get through this as a country. But it's a it's a very serious. Uh, uh, situation that we're facing, and and you know, we'll, but you know, Americans always rise to the occasion of these, and we'll uh, we'll get through it. Uh, but it's a this is a, this is a tough uh, policy crisis that we're facing, public health crisis. You mentioned in your remarks the uh, efforts that you're taking to right size the National Security Council staff. 
Uh, a few years ago, I was uh, leading a study that Heritage did on how to uh, approach the National Security Council staff, the size and the processes and the like. And there was two things that came out of that study, and I was interviewing former national security advisors and, uh, and also other people who had been involved in the government over the last uh, 25 or 30 years, and two things came out of that process, even going all the way back to Scowcroft, uh, even back into the, uh, into the Eisenhower administration. The National Security Council staff is the president's staff. It's not the government's staff. Uh, that's why it doesn't, you don't go through a confirmation process. That's critically important. That was widely understood for decades, even going back, as I said, to the 1950s. And the second thing was is that the processes that will be, were to be created were to help the president understand not only what the various agencies thought, but also what that staff and what you thought as well. Um, so clearly, uh, much of the discussions is about how big the staff is. But I think that one of the things, and I think that you, uh, from my, I'm hearing from what you're saying, is the size of the staff is also uh, related to that purpose of what the staff should be. Because in the past, particularly under President Obama, there were so many people from the other agencies, it was becoming, they were envoys for the agencies to the president rather than the other way around. So can you say a little more about the, not only what you're doing, uh, why you're doing it, uh, what the president expects from you on this, and, and uh, some more information on how you're doing this. Right sure. Side. Well, okay. I think you make some some good points there. Uh, look, the, the the NSC is the personal staff for the president of the United States to to help him uh, run an interagency process to make sure he gets the best advice, the best policy options from the cabinet uh, departments and the agencies. Uh, that that's what the NSC is there to do. It's not there to be operational. It's not there to recreate the Pentagon. It's not there to recreate the State Department, uh, the DHS, or any of the uh, DIC. And, and so I think that's a, maybe a fundamental uh, change from perhaps where the last administration was. I mean, when I got there, I was told that there were, there were folks that were making calls from the NSC out to forward operating bases. There were people that were making calls to, to ships. Uh, there were folks who were regularly calling embassies and that sort of thing and it had become a very operationalized uh, uh, organization. Uh, it had also become very big with, with detailees from all over the place. Now, part of the reason, the reason we have detailees is because there's a very small budget for the NSC, and so we have to rely on detailees. But the detailees that come over, they're, they're coming over not to, as you point out, not to represent their, uh, their agency at the NSC. They're coming over to staff the President of the United States and give him a national security and a foreign policy staff. Uh, when I got there, I saw how big the, the NSC remained and, and to some extent how, uh, how there were some operational things that were still happening at the NSC, but the legacy uh, going, going back, you know, 14 years, uh, uh, you know, even into the Bush administration, I felt it was time to get back to the Brent Scowcroft model. So I met with, with most of my predecessors, Republican and Democrat. I talked to them, and, and everybody said, you know, do what Brent did. And, and so we've tried to do that. Uh, we didn't do what President Kennedy did. Uh, when President Kennedy took over uh, the presidency from, from General Eisenhower, from President Eisenhower, uh, the president had a 70-person uh, large, at, at, for the time, a large NSC staff. And in fact, it took until uh, President Clinton for the NSC staff to get back to the size it was under the policy staff, back to the size it was under Eisenhower. President Kennedy summarily dismissed everyone who was working for President Eisenhower and brought in 12 political loyalists, uh, experts, people that he could trust and rely on to be his national security staff. Uh, you can imagine what would have happened if I would have done that uh, here, uh, how, how the press would have, uh, would have reacted to that. We decided not to go that route. What we decided to do was, was allow people's details to expire, in some cases uh, uh, to combine some, some of the directorates, uh, to take some of the economic directorates that had been uh, uh, pulled into the NSC, put them back into the NEC, uh, where, uh, where I felt that, that Larry Kudlow and the, the economists and, that, and those folks could, could do a great job uh, running our economic policy, but also uh, because we had good personal relationships and we trusted each other and, and we weren't getting out of our lane. Mike? I'll, I'll try and project a little bit more of that. Uh, bring the mic up then. 
everyone's going to use Perel after they uh, <laughs> after they use this mic. Do we have sound? Is this any better? Okay, that's great. So, so look, we we we've we've brought the the size down, but we've done it through the most part through attrition and through uh, through holding off on hiring. And that, and look, it's a privilege to work at the White House. I think there are a number of people that that come to the White House and look, it's great anytime you come through the gates. And every time every morning I come through the gates of the White House, I realize it's a it's a privilege and an honor to be there. And I, I understand that it's going to be a short period of time. I don't know how short a period of time it is, but I'm not going to be there forever. And, and I try and enjoy every day uh, that, that I have the the, the, the the enormous privilege of serving the president and, and, and coming into the, the, as President Reagan referred to the White House, the people's house. Uh, I think there are some people that, that decided that the NSC was going to be a career forum and, uh, and they were going to stay there as long as they could. And I think there are some folks that probably had the idea that they knew better uh, how to conduct uh, the foreign policy of the United States than the elected president of the United States. Uh, so I, I think if, look, if, if, if you're on the president's staff and, and you don't agree with the president and you can't put your disagreements aside uh, and you can't get on board with the president's policy, you know, they're, they're, you're probably better served and the country's probably better served if you're back at an agency doing something uh, uh, where you're, you know, you're not trying to make policy or create policy or thwart policy or uh, resist policy, uh, or you're better off going to run for Congress or, or state Senate or, or Senate or whatever you're going to do uh, where you can be a policymaker. But I think that the job of folks at the NSC, and that includes me, you know, I, I, I tell my staff quite often, I'm a staffer. I, mean, I, I staff the most important uh, person in the world when it comes to national security. I have a secret service detail, so it's a great staff job. But at the end of the day, I'm staff. And, and everybody who works in the NSC for me is staff, and we're there to staff the president and make sure that he gets the best advice policy possible and, and make sure that his policies are implemented. And, and if you've got a different view of, of what you should be doing, the NSC is probably not the best place for you to, to be serving, be, be doing your public service. You'd probably find somewhere else to do your public service uh, you know, outside of the White House. Okay. All right, let's go to the audience and, and get some questions here. Uh, we've lost the microphone on this side, but uh, we have one over here. So uh, let's go. Let's see. Uh, my goodness, there's so many people. Uh, sir, in the back there. And please identify yourself and, if possible, limit yourself to one question. Sinclair Harris, uh, U.S. Navy retired. Uh, thank you for your service. My question is, where do you rank our lack of investment and focus in adopting new technologies, 5G, quantum computing, AI, in terms of our long-term security risks. Uh, everybody I hear concerned about a slowness in our adoption of new technology in these areas. Yeah, th thank you, and, uh, and thank you for your service. Go Navy. Uh, I was at the Army-Navy game uh, earlier this, uh, this year. It <laughs> didn't go very well for the Army, uh, but uh, <laughs> got some got some some sailors out there. Uh, look, I think we're doing pretty well in quantum and AI. Uh, 5G. I you know I I felt like I was an unpaid spokesman for Nokia and Ericsson for the past uh, a few months. Uh, Huawei has gotten the jump on us. China got the jump on us. Uh, but I'm a huge believer in in America and in the private sector. And and it's amazing how the private sector saves us from ourselves on a, on a regular basis. And and for example, with 5G, we're seeing some great things. We're seeing a, a company called Rakuten out in uh, Japan that's come up with a solution that's that's more technologically advanced uh, than Huawei, that's cheaper than Huawei, that can be de deployed easier than Huawei. Uh, Microsoft and Dell uh, are are jumping into have, have similar uh, uh, platforms uh, that they're working on in the U.S. Qualcomm, Cisco, uh, Oracle uh, are are doing great, and so I think that that. The Chinese got a jump on us, and the way they got the jump on us was unfair competition. Uh, they they under uh, they, they they subsidized Huawei. They undercut some of our great telecom uh, equipment manufacturers and great telecom equipment manufacturers in Europe, uh, and 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 they they uh, in in large part destroyed the market and, and left themselves as a sole option uh, for many countries that uh, that want to move forward with a, a a relatively inexpensive telecom system. The Chinese are only too happy to come in and give it to them for free or loan them the money at high interest rates to, uh, uh, in debt trap diplomacy to, to give them 5G. But I think the world has woken up uh, to that, 
And even if it's not because of U.S., uh, you know, our concern over, over sharing our intelligence or, or, or secrets with, with our allies and friends and partners, uh, or, or even them taking care of their own uh, uh, intelligence uh, that they want to they keep out of prying Chinese hands, uh, I, I think what they're realizing is, is that their citizens uh, don't want uh, every single thing that they do on their 5G platform, whether it's their tablet or their computer or their, uh, their handheld device, their phone, uh, going to uh, massive uh, cloud farms uh, run by Beijing and with artificial intelligence and quantum computing uh, being mined. So, you know, it's funny. I was up in, in Canada. No one really cared if the Chinese, uh, you know, I should have made a flip there. I, I think people were sometimes, some people were less concerned about how the U.S. would react on an intelligence sharing front if they, if they had Huawei. Uh, but when they heard that grandma's medical records might be accessed by the Chinese, they got very wound up and very concerned about it. So, uh, so I went with the grandma's medical records, uh, and uh, and I think the, the Canadians and, and the Australians have done a great job on this. The Kiwis have come on board. The Japanese have come on board. The French, for their own reasons, without us lobbying them, I think it's a Gallic independence. Uh, uh, the French aren't going with Huawei. Uh, the, the Poles aren't. A number of countries in the Balkans, the Baltics, uh, have signed MOUs with us. So. I think our, our partners have woken up. Uh, we're a little disappointed with what's happened in the UK. Uh, but I think once uh, uh, the UK realizes that there's an inexpensive, better technological option uh, than Huawei that's safer, uh, I think they'll end up going with it. In the meantime, I, I told my counterpart, uh, Sir Mark said, well, I'll, I'll send them whatever we need for five eyes on carrier pigeons or, <laughs> or uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a briefcase locked to a, a courier's arm and uh, we'll put them on the plane and get it to them. Uh, uh, if, if we're concerned about security. That'll get their attention. <laughs> Is there anyone over here? Yes, ma'am. Right, right there. Uh, Susan Yoshihara, President of the American Council on Women, Peace, and Security. That agenda is run from your staff, and uh, the President has taken a keen interest in it. Um, it runs the gamut from constabulary small wars up to the strategic, and I'd like to ask if you were to uh, look into wanting research from this uh, this field. Where would you put it, and how do you see women leveraging our national security? No, I, I think that's a great question. And, uh, uh, as the father of two daughters, uh, one who's a, an Air Force ROTC cadet and, and pilot, uh, and the other who's uh, going to the Army JAG Corps, I'm, I'm grateful for the path that you're blazing and, and your colleagues are blazing. Uh, for them. And, and, and uh, I, I'm very proud of the uh, the fact that at the NSC now, I believe, I think about 40% of our senior directors uh, are women. I think it's the highest. I'm, I'm told, I don't know if this is true, but I'm told it's the highest uh, level of women senior directors uh, ever at the National Security Council. And, and I can tell you, they're, they're fantastic. Uh, none of them were hired because they were women. They were hired because they're the best people for the job. But it, it so happens that, that we've got this great, uh, uh, great group of, uh, of women who are in, working in national security in the White House. Uh, uh, look, you know, just... An overall point, I, you know, I'd love to see your research and, and, and uh, get briefed on it, but what I've told colleagues, uh, other national security advisors in, in countries, especially in the Middle East and uh, uh, South Central Asia, you can't have a great country and you can't have a great economy uh, if you're excluding half the people in the country from participating. It doesn't make any sense. I, I spent uh, several years working on rule of law in Afghanistan. And uh, one of the things we found, we were training, this was back in the Bush administration, we were training prosecutors, judges, and Secretary Rice had a, a real focus on making sure that we had uh, uh, plenty of women uh, judges, prosecutors, defense lawyers that were part of our training program. And, and I'd have a, a hard time because I'd, I'd go to Afghanistan, we'd meet with folks in Kabul, I'd meet with the Minister of Justice or the, the Supreme Court, uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and say, we'd like to see the delegation that you're going to send over that we're going to pay for and they give us a delegation that would be 100% men. And uh, I say, well, that, this isn't going to work. Uh, you know, let's, you know, can we, can we get a woman on that? You know, at least one woman on it. And then we got to the point one, two, and we, we eventually got to the point uh, where it was, we were, we were up to a 50-50. Uh, we were able to do a, a program for women judges and just, and, uh, and prosecutors and, and defense lawyers, uh, an all-women's uh, group. That actually turned out to be fantastic uh, when we brought them together without, uh, without the men and the, and the things that we learned about Afghanistan from these, these women lawyers who were very courageous. Many of them were subject to death threats on a daily basis. Uh, uh, one woman prosecutor in uh, uh, Herat had to send her family 
uh, to Germany to live because uh, she was under uh, constant threat of, of bombing in her home. Uh, well, we found out they were the least corrupt folks. And so just from a, a national interest point of view, putting aside gender equality and that sort of thing, just from, a, from, from our, our, an American point of view, policy point of view, they were the least corrupt folks, they were the most effective, and they were incredibly courageous. And uh, so, so you know, the, the message that I've got, I think it's probably, I, I'm sure some of your research bears this out, is that countries that, that allow full participation in, in the legal process that allow women to have title to property, which, you know, shouldn't be a novel concept, but unfortunately is in large parts of the world, uh, countries that have, uh, have women in government uh, tend to do better, tend to be more peaceful, and, and tend to be better partners for the United States. So it's, it's a national security issue beyond just being you know, a moral, moral issue, the right thing to do. Hold on. Thank you, Bob, for your service, and Peter Yusey from the Air Force Association. As part of our group called the Committee on the Present Danger China, we have found that there's a lot of thrift groups, including the U.S. government, plus um, the CalPERS in California, is investing in Chinese military companies with American money. Can you look into that, or can you tell me kind of where we are on that? Yeah, that's a great point, a great question. It's something we are looking at. And uh, look, it's, a, it's an issue of, of security for American investors. We've got a lot of retirees who depend on, uh, you know, and, and some of the CalPERS investment policies are, are incredibly concerning. Uh, we, we've got you know, folks who, who are going to rely on their pension for their retirement. And, and putting those investments into companies that don't have gap accounting and that don't have the same reporting requirements that American companies do uh, is is scary. I mean, I you know I'd hate to see uh, if someone told me I had to invest my 401k uh, in Chinese state-owned enterprises or, or partially state-owned enterprises uh, where they don't follow the generally accepted accounting principles and and they don't have to report to uh, independent regulatory bodies. I'd be pretty worried about that. So it's it's something we're taking a look at and it, and it's concerning. And uh, uh, moreover, like okay, why, why are we sending American capital? Uh, to a country and and supporting an, you know a defense industry that's popping out a couple of destroyers and frigates a month and, and threatening to have total overmatch against us in the uh, in the Pacific. So I, I mean I don't I don't see why uh, we should be underwriting uh, uh, the Chinese uh, defense industry. I'd, I'd rather underwrite the U.S. defense industry with our our retirees' money, and I feel safer uh, with that money in in, in U.S. companies' hands. I was going to ask him a question, and now you're getting all this interest. I can't do it. <laughs> yes, sir. Hi. Uh, Dennis Peterson, DOD Inspector General. Thanks for being with us today, sir. I'd like to turn to the Philippines uh, briefly. Um, tiny country, but a big strategic ally, both in terms of counterterror and great power competition. We now have this ticking clock where they're threatening to kick us out by ending the visiting forces agreement. So just wondering, sort of, A, you know, what we're doing right now to try and forestall that, and B, if we do indeed wind up uh, getting the boot from the Philippines, sort of what our, our plan B is uh, in that region. Thanks. Uh, Alex, it's an important question. The Philippines is a critical ally. Uh, I've had uh, a number of senior Philippine leaders uh, in my office over the past month. Uh, you know, we, we have a great relationship with the Philippines and with the people of the Philippines, and there's, there's a... I come from California. Uh, we have lots of Filipino Americans, uh, Filipino Americans, and, and Filipino Americans in uh, in our country. Uh, our, the history of our countries have been have been intertwined for for many many years, uh, and uh, uh, Filipinos and, and Filipinos have served bravely in the U.S. Armed Forces. Uh, we've been a, a, a stalwart ally to the Philippines in their fight against terrorism. Uh, and especially post 9/11, so it's a strong relationship. It's an important relationship. The Philippines is in the first island chain. Uh, the Philippines has been terribly abused by the People's Republic of China, which has uh, uh, taken over, uh, literally taken over Philippines uh, territory, uh, taken over islands that are that are. Uh, uh, there, there's a very strong, there's a very very strong argument that uh, the number of these reefs and and atolls and islands belong to the Philippines that have been. Uh, uh, swarmed by uh, this cabbage uh, strategy, uh, uh, swarmed by uh, the the blue militia, and then by by gray holes and and Chinese uh, coast guard vessels. So so the Philippines ought to be most concerned uh, uh, about the encroachment on their EEZ and on the on their actual 
<coughs> excuse me, sovereign territory. Uh, we're there to help the Philippines. We have treaty relationships with the Philippines, and and I think we're going to work things out with the Philippines. Uh, you know, there's uh, like I don't want to talk about Plan Bs because our you know our our plan is to remain great friends with the Philippines. That obviously the the archipelago occupies a very strategic place in the first island chain, uh, and it's it's important to us. And 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 we're not going to give up on the Philippines. I don't think the Philippines is going to get up give up on us. And I think it would be very hard for that to happen because of the. Uh, the strong relations and cultural affinity between the Philippines and the United States. So we'll keep working the issue, and uh, and I think we're going to continue to be there to to uh, uh, be there with our friends in the Philippines for for many years to come. Let's go over here. Yes. Thank you, uh, Diane Zeleny with the International Republican Institute. Quick question: When are we going to free the people of Venezuela? Yeah, hopefully sooner than later. I mean, I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, like a lot of these places, we, we offer support and help. We had President uh, Juan Guaido at the uh, State of the Union. Uh, that was one of the great moments, the State of the Union, when uh, President Guaido was introduced. Uh, we're in a somewhat polarized town, if, if folks haven't noticed, and uh, uh, the State of the Union was uh, was a little polarized. Uh, uh, but but one of the one of the moments where everybody came together on both sides of the aisle was when President Guaido was introduced and stood up. Uh, uh, both Republicans and Democrats were were unanimous in in applauding him and his courage. He's a very brave man to to walk the streets of uh, of Venezuela under the the circumstances exist there. And uh, we're going to continue to support the Venezuelan people. Uh, we we put in recently additional sanctions on Rosnov uh, and Rosnov Trading, and, and we're looking at some of its subsidiaries now. Uh, to to ensure that uh, uh, the the wealth the petrol wealth of the people of Venezuela stays with the people and, and, does, and doesn't go as it has been to the the regime which is entirely corrupt 100% corrupt uh, and to the uh, the Russians and the Chinese we'd like to see those petrodollars stay with the people of Venezuela this was one of the richest countries in the world and certainly the, the the richest country in Latin America and and if anyone ever asks if you've got young kids who say hey socialism sounds great isn't it just like uber you know where we share a car uh and i kind of have to explain to them that lyft and uber are a result of a great capitalist free market system but and it's not socialism is not airbnb uh or crashing on your friend's couch uh socialism is what happens in venezuela where you take one of the richest countries in the world and and you've got you know middle class people that used to have good jobs now going to garbage dumps and picking through garbage to find food for their family you know, that's socialism. Uh, so we're going to do everything we can to continue to support and help the people of Venezuela, and I'm looking forward to a time that they're free. Uh, we just had a, a dinner in, in Mar-a-Lago uh, with the president and President Bolsonaro of, of Brazil. Uh, the Brazilians are 100% with us on this, as are many of our, our allies in Latin America. Uh, folks are united in, in, in just disdain for Maduro and, and horror at what he's done to a, a great country. So uh, we're going to keep working on uh, on supporting the friends in Venezuela, and I, I look forward, like you do, to uh, uh, a time when there's peace uh, and, and freedom and, and real democracy in Venezuela. And keep doing the great work at IRI. It's uh, uh, you, you guys and, and, and our, our Democrat friends at uh, NDA, they do, do a great job uh, uh, monitoring elections, and, and I've, I've been privileged to go out on a few of those, those uh, trips in the past as well. So keep up, keep up the great work. Thank you. Let's go over and Yes, sir. Jim Hansen with Security Studies Group. I uh, wanted to get your opinion on the recent, I guess, help we've been getting from Erdogan in Syria. Uh, he's got a bit of a head-to-head -head going on with Putin and Assad. Um, done some fairly massive damage to Assad's combat forces. A, are you concerned about that escalating? Uh, the, the meeting with Putin and Erdogan did not seem to go tremendously well, even though they came to an agreement. And are you happy now that we seem to at least be getting some help from Erdogan in that area as opposed to him kind of asserting his will absent our cooperation? So look, the serious situation is extraordinarily difficult. Uh, one of the first things I had to do, uh, I haven't held, uh, heard help and Erdogan uh, in the same sentence in a while. Uh, one of the first things I had to do in this job was get on a plane and, and fly to uh, Ankara to, to work out a, uh, a ceasefire between the uh, uh, some of the Kurdish forces that we were supporting, and uh, and President Erdogan, who decided to uh, to move into northern Syria. Look, we were concerned at the time that that happened, and we warned our Turkish friends that, that we had we had a uh, a somewhat stable situation uh, that 
if the Turks insisted on invading into northern Syria and we had to pull our troops back to eastern and southern Syria, uh, that there'd be consequences. And, and I think that the uh, uh, I, I think that uh, President Erdogan and, and his folks are, are learning that dealing with President Putin uh, is uh, is not an easy thing. And uh, relying on the Russians uh, to be your partner and ally, it, it may not always be the best idea, uh, especially in a place like Syria. So they're uh, uh, certainly uh, Turkey's a NATO ally. Uh, we uh, we certainly deplore what the regime forces, which are Russian, Iranian, uh, and Syrian regime forces, are doing in the Idlib area. The humanitarian crisis in all of Syria is, is tragic. It's horrific. Um, we're, we're certainly providing humanitarian aid to the Turks who are dealing with the uh, the fallout of this this most recent regime activity, which is uh, uh, again brutal, uh, and so we'll, we'll we'll watch and see how it develops. Uh, we're certainly supporting uh, all of the uh, the efforts to uh, uh, in Geneva and otherwise to uh, to bring peace to Syria. But that's a uh, uh, that's a very difficult situation. I mean, but some folks have suggested that we we stop the fighting, but we're not going to drop the 101st in the middle of of Russian, Syrian, Iranian, Al Qaeda, Turkish, TSO. Uh, you know, uh, Syrian uh, defense force. I mean, that, that, that it's, a, it's an eight-way conflict that's going on there, and so so that's not something we're going to commit American troops to uh, at this point. But but we do have American troops in in eastern Syria. We're defending the oil fields, and that's uh, the revenue from those oil fields is allowing uh, uh, the Kurdish uh, folks and our friends in the region to have hospitals and, and refugee camps and, and to keep the ISIS folks under lock and key and. Uh, we, we've got folks down at Tamf uh, defending our, our friends in Jordan and Israel. So uh, we feel like we're 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 doing a lot in uh, in Syria, and uh, and we're going to continue to help the the the, uh, the Turks on a humanitarian front with the refugee crisis that they're facing. We only have a few minutes left, uh, and I can't let you go without asking you a question about Iran. Uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency has reported that uh, Iran has uh, nearly tripled the size of its stockpile for uh, enriched uranium. Inspectors are not being allowed in. Uh, can you say a few words about what the next steps are for uh, making sure that Iran does not get a nuclear weapon? Well, I'll say this, and the president made this very clear uh, when he spoke to the press after the, uh, the, the strike at the Baghdad airport. Uh, the first thing he said was Iran will never have a nuclear weapon. That's that's the U.S. policy, and, and we'll we'll make sure that that, that take, as long as President Trump is in in office, Iran will never have a nuclear weapon, and uh, uh, we'll continue our maximum pressure campaign. Uh, and the Iranians can do it the easy way, the hard way. They can uh, give up their nuclear program. They can dismantle uh, Natanz and Fordo and, and and their other nuclear uh, enrichment facilities, uh, uh, or they're going to continue to face. Uh, uh, maximum pressure, and 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 in the, in the end of the day, they will not develop a nuclear weapon. Mr. Ryan, I uh, fortunately that's all the time we have. I'm actually one minute under, uh, but I want to thank you for coming here today. It's really a pleasure and honor to have you here. I know you're very busy. Uh, I think that the uh, you can see from the uh, interest of the audience in this time when not a, a lot of people are going out to public events that they're very glad that you're here as well. Uh, so uh, we uh, thank you for coming, and uh, and uh, I'd like to ask all of you now to give a round of applause to Ambassador. Thank you, thank you very much, Ken. Thank you. Thank Have you. a great day, everyone. Can I ask everyone to remain in your seats until the ambassadors have exited? Thank you very much. Thank you. I gotta. I'm gonna have to stay here. And wait.